I still have a connection, listeners. Let's talk memes. 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 The U.S. has distracted boyfriend, ceiling cat, those two pictures of Drake. Meanwhile, in Russia, we have Justice Walker, Putin Hulo, and Peter the Great and Shrek. What are you doing in my swamp? And to tell us about all that, we have Professor Elliot Bornstein, who's a professor in the Russian and Slavic Studies Department at NYU, affiliated also with the Jordan Center, here to talk about memes, meme culture, and shirtless Putin. It's a blast. Take a it, listen. It's a good time. Hope you enjoy. Sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> it's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, everyone, to The Slavic Connection. We are here today with Dr. Elliot Bornstein, professor in the Russian and Slavic Studies Department at NYU, and he's here to talk with us about Russian memes. Thank you very much for joining us today. Sure, Sure, my pleasure. Really excited to chat with you. It's funny you asked us how how we were doing. Yeah, because as Colin was mentioning, uh, it's hard to answer that question these days when everything feels oh, I know, but, like it's you know, on fire. News, last night's news was kind of exciting. So yeah, something. Here's, here's hoping. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm not sure exactly what to hope for, but I'm I'm enjoying it. Any outcome is good, honestly. Any outcome is good. I don't know. Outcome Those are famous is- last words for 2020. That's fair. That's fair. So to kick it off, we wanted to kind of just get a little bit of a sense of what you mean when you talk about Russian memes. What is the role of that in your research? Well, the role of my, my research is that I'm finishing up a book on it, a short book for uh, the Russian short series at um, Bloomsbury. So it's the entire focus of this, of this one project. But defining what is a Russian internet meme is, is an interesting part of it because, of course, one of the great things about internet culture is how few barriers it respects. So there isn't an entirely self-contained Russian internet culture. There's a lot of cross-pollination and there's also a lot of appropriation of Russian images and Russian themes for, um, by makers of internet memes outside of Russia. So it's all a very complex scenario. But what I'm looking at primarily is internet memes produced in Russia, consumed at least in part by Russian speakers, Russian readers. And where possible, I try to tease out some of the significance of a given meme or a given meme trend. Okay. So from my experience as someone who does not speak Russian and is not on the Russian internet at all, when I think of Russian memes, I think of dash cam footage and tracksuits. And where, (laughs) for more internal consumption, how does the meme culture differ? Well, the nice thing about those two examples is there's great overlap, right? I mean, so let's take the tracksuits. In the English-speaking world, the meme is known as the squatting slavs. And calling it Slav is really interesting, too, because for the most part, the examples are from Russia, but they're often examples from Serbia and other parts of the um, former Eastern Bloc, certainly Ukraine. But really, the focus is on this particular type of usually young man who is wearing a tracksuit, who's squatting, um, and who is what Russians call a gopnik, um, which is kind of like a, you know, like a chav in, in the UK, a sort of street tough street thug. This is a subculture that's existed for a while, but had a big moment in the 1990s and really hasn't disappeared. And so the Gopnik is a significant part of the Russian language meme world. 
but I think it plays a different role outside of Russia because within Russia, it's focused on a particular type that is identified as Russian, but not not all of Russia, right? In fact, a lot is projected on the Gopnik that you could say is things about um, Russia that Russians themselves either dislike or um, affectionately dislike. Whereas when it's abroad, without the context of, of a whole um, ecosystem of Russian memes, it ends up being one of the few things that stands for um, Russia or Slavdom um, outside of Russia and fits in with what could arguably be an unfortunate tendency for Russia to, to be deployed in English language memes as a source of just wackiness, right? So that that this is a kind of typecasting of Russians as these strange people who do these strange things. That certainly fits with the Dashcam videos. Right. And I think that while it doesn't take place in Russia, the fantastic documentary film Eurotrip employs these in a very similar way in the scene where they end up in Bratislava. And as soon as they get off the bus, the main character goes, oh my God, we're in Eastern Europe. And then some Orthodox band choir starts playing. And it's, it's, it's very much like the one impression that seems to come across for a lot of people. It's like Borat, really. Yes. It's a particular type of Eastern European yokel who is really funny to laugh at, right? And means different things within the culture that it's supposedly parroting. Although in the case of Borat, it has nothing to do with Kazakhstan whatsoever. And in the culture that's consuming it, which in, in the case of Borat is the rest of the world. You know, overall, the study of memes is a very contemporary way to study a country's culture. It's, it's a little bit interesting for me to look at, say, a Lenin meme and think, ah, yes, this is representative of Russian culture. But would you would you say that understanding the Russian meme, the the thing, the jokes that are produced on the Internet are sort of important to understand Russian culture? I think they're useful to understand Russian culture and they become more important to the extent that meme culture becomes a bigger part of the overall culture which is, of course, a demographic thing. I mean, it's so clear in the United States, right, the, the, the different level of importance for memes for, say, millennials and especially Gen Z people than for, say, Gen X and, and, and higher. But that's the thing about internet memes that I think works for um, learning about Russia, but really for any community you're talking about when you're looking at the memes. The very nature of the internet meme is to, to call on a set of associations that are only immediately available to a particular community and thereby define that community in part as the people who understand the meme. So to the extent that you, just, just like with studying jokes, I mean, there's a long tradition of studying, say, particularly Soviet jokes and then post-Soviet jokes, of which there are, of course, fewer. When you get why it's supposed to be funny and when you get what they're looking at, then you get more about the culture. And in the case of things like Lenin memes, what's great is, and like with um, the, the squatting Slav and the dash cam, which we haven't really gotten to yet, is that by comparing the memes that are produced by and for Russians and the memes that are produced outside of Russia, you learn something like Stalin, for instance. Stalin, Stalin is big in both the English language um, meme world and the Russian meme world, but they do very different things. And the English language meme world, one of the most popular Stalin sets of memes are about this hipster Stalin, right? That the picture of Stalin as a young man is sort of incredibly dashingly good looking. It's kind of, it's appalling, right? How good looking he was. And he wears the scarf. So he sort of looks like he's just stepped, that, stepped out of Bushwick. And so the hipster Stalin is all about, you know, like I was into mass murder before it was in style. It was all about like this, you know, I liked X before. Whereas in the, in the Russian memes about Stalin, it's largely about jokes about, yeah, I'll just kill everybody. Most, mostly that, right? So not that those wouldn't work for, for English speakers, it's just a different focus on different things. I guess in that sense too, it sort of, as someone who studies Russian and 
understands the nuances of, of the culture and stuff like that. Would you say those kind of memes and like along with that and like the Trollolo guy gives an image of Russia? And I think that's what people know. Is yeah. that kind of harmful? I mean, what is the effect on that on people outside of this realm of post-Soviet spheres? That's an excellent question. I, I wouldn't want to go as far as to say harmful because I, I don't want to get into that censorious media criticism that is a big part of Russian media, which is to say, this is negative. This is not a flattering depiction, therefore it's bad or therefore meant to be harmful. It's certainly narrow. With the Trollolo guy, I mean, what's great about that is, you know, of course, when it comes to the outside world, people love it just because it is so ridiculous, right? And they don't need to know Russian for it. And if you do know Russian, there are the two lines he's singing, like, I'm glad to be going home, big deal. But what is so great is just the intense cheesiness about it. And I'm still shocked by one time I was at a conference and I was talking to some some Russian colleagues, some very sophisticated Russian colleagues, and one was asking why this is so big. And it's going to be because it's so ridiculous and cheesy. And she said, oh, but it's sweet. And of course, that's one anecdotal piece of data. But I think the overwhelming cheesiness of it is the first thing that comes to people outside of the former Soviet Union. And then it could be generational. But it's focusing on the weird. Particularly useful there is you need to know, you don't need to know any, any language or any context for it whatsoever. And the context you learn doesn't really help, right? Do Russian memes about the Soviet era have the same like laser focus on Stalin that Western memes do? Because that's all I ever see is the 30s and 40s. That's all that's really ever represented. Oh, there's much more. There's much more. So I have a chapter in the book about, about memes about Soviet leaders. So each one has their own thing, right? And what's interesting to do is to compare that to the jokes about the Soviet leaders, right? Because that was such a big part of urban folklore. One, the memes are more distributed among the Soviet leaders than, than they would be in the West. And two, the things, that, the things that are the subject of the memes don't always overlap with things that are subject to the jokes, because the jokes are primarily verbal and the memes are primarily visual. So for instance, Lenin memes, a lot of them function with famous image of Lenin. It sort of functions like the most interesting man in the world, like here's his face, and then we're going to have some, some captions. A lot of them are interestingly enough pictures of Lenin after his stroke, looking um, looking like he's not all there and playing with that. And that wasn't available at all during Soviet times. And also it's an image, you couldn't do anything with it. But Khrushchev is a great subject for memes, um, but usually they have to do with his love of corn and his just general idiocy. And Brezhnev, of course, I mean, Bre Brezhnev jokes were such a cottage industry in Russia and the Soviet Union and not in the United States, the Brezhnev jokes were largely about how he can barely speak and how he's not really all there and all of that. And they were verbal and they're about how, how he sounded. In the West, when people made fun of Brezhnev, it was about how he looked. And now the memes about Brezhnev are more like the Western approach to Brezhnev, which is this strange looking man with the big eyebrows and in particular his propensity for kissing men. That's like all over the place. That image from the Berlin Wall of him kissing Honecker. There are all these images of him kissing and then, or just a picture of him and saying, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a regular guy. I see a pair of lips and I kiss him. <laughs> it's very memeable. Yeah, exactly. I actually also wanted to touch, you mentioned briefly the, the anecdote, like the political jokes, the dark humor that really encapsulated the Soviet era. How do anecdotes and memes connect? Is it kind of an evolution? Is it a parallel? Can you connect, say, like the satirical magazine Crocodile to, to a mm -hmm. meme? You can connect Crocodile to the extent that you can connect memes in general to, say, editorial cartoons, because there's something editorial cartoons do, which is like use an image for a metaphor and then often label things to make sure you get the metaphor that is similar to what happens in memes. And so this is something that 
is a common evolutionary thing in Russian memes and I think in, in Western memes that they have this in common. But when it comes to the relationship to jokes, that's one thing that I think gives memes a different place in the evolution of modern Russian culture, different from the place that uh, memes have in the evolution of, say, modern Anglo-American culture. Because, of course, in Soviet times, I mean, the media is restricted. There's a lot less, you're not swimming in information the way we were in the West, but you had the jokes, right? This kind of outlet. And that meant that a couple things. One, you had the, the very phenomenon of telling these kind of canned jokes, right? That could be told by anyone at a time when in, in, in America, at least, um, that had completely fallen out of fashion. Comedians were telling referential humor, sort of, sort of jokes that needed the, the persona of the comedian to tell them. Canned jokes in, in, this, in America by the end of the 20th century were largely the realm of children's humor. Like um, when I was growing up, there were dead baby jokes and Helen Keller jokes. Doesn't that bother you? I'll explain afterwards if, <laughs> if you need. But so these functioned as this very portable kind of urban oral folklore that was prominent in particular in the absence of a lot of competition, right? So that time lag between the, the semi-death of the Russian anecdote, right? Because in the 90s, those complaints are there are no good jokes anymore. The semi-death of the Russian anecdote and the rise of the Russian internet meme, that's, made, that's like a decade and a half. Whereas the um, time frame between the death of the joke in America and the Russian internet meme is several decades. Um, so what, what I'm trying to trace is a movement from the joke through weird kind of experiments in, a, in participatory, participatory, participatory culture on Russian television, like this horrible show Znakachisla, which is like a no talent show, and then the Russian internet meme. Oh, and also Kavoyen, of course. Kavoyen keeps all of this alive too. So I don't know if that answers your question, but the role is, is different in Russia from in the States. In terms of Russian meme culture versus Russian culture as a meme in the West, like with the idea of the dystopian, catastrophic Eastern Europe that comes across, um, especially in video games, like the right. most common ones seen, such as you know, Stalker, Metro, all of these post-apocalyptic, irradiated futures that seem to be prevalent in the West. How do you see that cross-cultural translation? It's a complex cross-cultural phenomenon because in part what we're dealing with is not just the content of, say, video games, but also the culture of gamers. And again, anecdotally, what I've come to understand is that a lot of non-Russian gamers really can't stand Russian gamers, or they make fun of Russian gamers, that Russian gamers are a drag, Russian gamers aren't playing right, blah, blah, blah. So the Russian gamer has a a reputation. And then also something that I think, if those of you are teaching language, right, something that's completely different now for students coming in as opposed to 20, 30 years ago, you can pretty much be sure that almost every American undergraduate knows the word suka and bled. Uh, should I? So suka means bitch, bled is whore, but they're both common ex, ex, exclamations. And you hear them all the time from gamers and you hear them all the time on YouTube. Um, so that also helps set up a sense of Russia. But I think the, the biggest source of this kind of Russia as this Disneyland of dysfunction comes from what starts with, in the 1980s, there was this really terrible emigre comedian, Yakov Smirnov. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. And his whole shtick was, oh, America, what a country. This is so, it is so strange, it's so great. And, and it was always com- contrasting America to in Soviet Russia, which of course something that you never say in Russia. You never heard of Sovietska Russia. It was, it was Sovietska Soyuz, right? In Soviet Russia, you don't watch TV. TV watches you. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so what you get from that 
is the huge meme pattern of in Soviet Russia, right? To this day, right? No one knows what Soviet means, right? So it's still Soviet Russia in these, in, in these memes, and that fits in with the dash cam stuff, right? So Soviet Russia in um, Anglo-American memes doesn't refer to the Soviet Union, doesn't refer to anything political. Soviet Russia means wacky Russia. And that has to play some sort of role in how, how people think of Russia. But I don't do that kind of empirical work, so I don't know. Because you've been doing so much, you know, intensive looking through of all of these memes, all of these meme macros, are there some that sort of surprised you or really informed your research? Because I'm thinking in the American perspective, there's always like that tiny asterisk, I would say with memes, there's also like the white nationalist Pepe the Frog aspect of it. Not to say that that there's like a more sinister side of it, but were there any sort of findings in your delvings that sort of really surprised you? Well, I'm not sure if surprise is the word. Disappoint, maybe. Oh. Um, but because precisely the white, the nationalist thing you're talking about, right? There are all these meme groups on, on Kontakt and Facebook, like Slavic memes for something teens or whatever, or nationalist memes. And they're, they tend to use the same macros over and over again. Lots of anime characters, lots of Doomer in, images, and lots of rage faces and, and stuff like that. But they're just, sometimes they're funny in that kind of alt-right way where you're not sure if you're supposed to take them seriously. But usually there's kind of racist so that didn't surprise me, but I went looking for it, right? I had to go looking for it. So mostly the challenge is sometimes they confuse me, right? Because I, I won't get the reference and I have to keep digging or ask around, you know, what they're talking about. But those are memes that I'm hunting for. Maybe I'm not doing the right search. They're not what come up when I, when I just sort of do searches for, for, for memes in Google and Yandex, which is actually one of my main methodological tools, because my argument is I'm just looking at the memes that everybody sees. Whereas these others are, I hope, a bit more niche. Um, but sure, there a lot of them use this kind of Viking white national long beard face that I think is kind of familiar in certain circles, and a kind of variation on the Doge meme with this little muscular dog guy, again and again and again. And then these horrible, horrible depictions of black people that also have sources that you know you can track down, and that some of them have to do with like video games. Mostly, they're just hideous. But it's, it's not as if I'm not in a position to say, like, if it's worse in Russia, I doubt it. In fact, it's probably worse in, in, in America, but it is definitely there. I, I just wonder how much intentional communication through memes goes on or versus how much of it is just kind of organic, for lack of a better word, as more and more people get access to the Internet. And as you were saying earlier, demographically becomes a larger section of the population. I, I, this popped into my head because we were just talking about pretty white nationalist memes, because there is a threat of that in the United States and, you know, you know Anglo meme right. culture that is driven consciously. I, I really couldn't say. I mean, I think to some extent, like on these um, contact groups and so on and so forth that I look at, these are just these are communities of like-minded people who are sharing stuff that we would find offensive and are kind of deliberately being provocative there. But what I, I, I don't have the, the information for, the data for really, is the extent to which, say, like these racist or white nationalist memes are being pushed out there to try to recruit people. I haven't seen signs of that. And I'm, I don't think, and I could be wrong about this, I don't think even as there's a you know, significant racist right-wing elements throughout the Russian Federation, I'm not aware of something analogous as a, as a set of people to the alt-right. Right. So my guess, and I'm, I'm reluctant to put much stock into what I myself am saying, my guess is it's, it's much less a matter of, say, an, a kind of quasi-organization trying to recruit people than it is in the States and parts of Europe. 
Dr. Bornstein, I did want to kind of circle back. We, we touched on this a little bit and how there seems to be a little bit of overlap between your ongoing study of memes and the research that you've already done. You've published quite a few works on a lot of different facets of, of Russian culture, but I was really struck by your studies on Russian masculinity, like the, that ties in with Russian pride. Um, it's, it's a very contemporary sort of viewpoint, as you've put it. And it popped up in your discussion of Putin memes. So I was kind of wondering, like, how how that has played into your study is like bringing in contemporary Russia into what's happening on the Internet. Oh, yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? Because until like, last year, I never thought I was going to do something specifically on Russian Internet memes. It was just more fodder for whatever question I was actually particularly looking into. So then certain topics, certain subjects suggested themselves, including obviously Putin. So the thing with Putin and masculinity, I mean, it's, it's difficult to talk about Putin memes without talking about masculinity, though I think actually it's more important in the Western memes than it is in the Russian memes, which I can get to in a moment. But I also feel like there's less space or less of a need for me to talk about Putin and masculinity in particular, you know, after Valerie Sperling's book and, and other works. The great thing about masculinity in these Putin memes is it's so out there and upfront, right, in, in, in such an obvious way. A way that I think comes off as too obvious to Western consumers of memes and to Russian. This is where I'm getting into the, where, you know, I just said that the masculinity issue is more important in the Western memes than the Russian memes. That goes back to a point that I've been trying to make about these, the shirtless Putin stuff on um, every chance I get, which is the really fascinating distinction that in the West, when, when we see shirtless Putin, and I get this question again and again, it is immediately framed as somehow homoerotic. And in Russia, I don't think it is so quickly framed as homoerotic. And that says something to me about one of the few downsides of living in a culture in the West that actually recognizes homosexuality as a real, ordinary, okay thing, that once we as a, as a public became aware that of homosexuality and it's fine, right, and it's out there, not only do we see it when it's there, but we see it as it's come to take on like the, the dominant notion of what male sexual display is, right? We see a man naked, we see a man a man showing his body. And in a, in a sense, because we're continuing the, the, the framework of the male gaze with a Z, we're assuming that it's men looking at the naked body and the naked body being shown for men. But if you, you know, read comments and stuff online and in Russia, there's often an assumption like, oh, the ladies are loving this, right? It's strange that we think there's something inherently homoerotic about masculine sexual display, that we can't even imagine that women are looking. So I think in the West, we overemphasize the homoeroticism of the, of the um, of the Putin memes. And, and in contrast with that, you have like the Bayevik, as you've written about, where <laughs> it's like so hyper-masculine, just so yeah. raw in this that it kind of becomes homoerotic on its own. Yeah. But again, like there's the question of who sees the homoeroticism, right? You know, if, if homoeroticism appears and no one's there to see it, is it homoeroticism? Well, yes, of course it is. But I think, again, I think and I, and I want to say this in a way that doesn't sound like I'm being regressive, but I think that our awareness of homoeroticism is so profound um, that it's the only male eroticism we're, we're able to see. Um, now, what goes on in the Bayevik and things like that is definitely homosocial. No question it's homosocial. And there is, there are definitely homoerotic aspects to it. But I think in the West, sometimes we see homoeroticism, we identify and like, we're done, we got it. And again, also, if, if you're not looking for homosexuality, you're not going to see it. And therefore, a whole category of behaviors and display that seem so homoerotic to us are not going to be perceived that way. I always joke that the Soviet Union was never invented gaydar, and there's a, an incredible set of blind spots there. One of the funny things is, like in the Soviet Union, for instance, there was so much more space for male expressions of affection to each other. 
because homosexuality was something only strange people somewhere else did. Whereas, say, um, American men, even, you know, a liberal American men are constantly policing themselves in a way that I think in the Soviet Union, you didn't have to police yourself, ironically, given that phrase, because it wasn't as much of a threat. And that ultimately what, what's happening in America is that even liberal men and boys who would always say, not that there's anything wrong with that, are so careful to make sure that they're not doing anything to be perceived as homoerotic. They wouldn't have to say, not that there's anything wrong with that, if they weren't worried about other people thinking there was something wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. Or simply giving off the wrong signal, right? I mean, I mean, the thing I always come back to is like the, 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 the thing that's changed in my lifetime is, you know, nudity in locker rooms, right? Generations of boys and men grow, grow up never actually seeing another naked man in front of them. Whereas when I was a kid, if you didn't undress in the locker room, there was something wrong with you, right? So we, we, we have like completely com um, isolated men from each other as part of our acceptance of, of homosexuality. I think this, for me, this really like contrasts as well, like the differences in Russian jokes and like why I find like the difference between like what was happening 40, 50 years ago and now it's like, it's a completely different Russia in a lot of aspects, but also just the trauma that was born from the collapse of the Soviet Union, this sort of phenomenon, I, I don't think people would have expected it, that it sort of would birth this nationalistic Russian pride, male power movement mm -hmm. and all the things that come from it as a result. Oh, absolutely. I guess the distinction I was trying to make in answer to the earlier question that fits into what you were saying is that um, it is all very much about male power, male, male strength, masculinity. Absolutely. But that's only partly recognized. It's recognized to the extent that, you know, um, masculinity is a good thing, but it's more of a, of a sense of a kind of natural order. I mean, one of the things I think that goes on with masculinity in contemporary Russia is that it's hugely important and not necessarily recognized as masculinity because it's just like the way things should be. A part of the reason it has become so obvious and upfront is the sense that it's under siege. Yeah, and that the country's under siege more. I think it, there, there's a kind of metonymical or synecdochal thing going on with it, right? Um, because what we have in the past several years is an intense remilitarization of the culture. I don't know if you guys saw just the other day, uh, I think it was a Meduza about a playground sponsored by the Ministry of Defense called Silvichok for like little Sigleviki. So when you militarize a culture, you're masculinizing a culture, typically. And that seems to be part of what's happening. This, this belligerence that's also a response to a, per, to a perception of threat. It's funny because I, you can even see it right now in their COVID-19 response, like speaking to people from Moscow, like asking why aren't people wearing their masks? It's like, well, for men, it's not, it's seen as it's feminizing. It's seen as unmanly to not to, to wear your mask. So. But that's here too, right? I mean, there's all yeah. these articles, why aren't men wearing masks? It's just the, the portion of the population might be different. But it's, it is fascinating that that ends up being everywhere, some comment on masculinity. And it can't be about like how you look. I don't think it's about how you look, but it's about the notion that you are vulnerable to something, right? That your body can be penetrated. And it's it fits in with these stereotypes of men's, oh, I'm not sick. I don't need to go to the doctor, right? And we've heard all of this stuff. It's, it seems to work in a number of cultures. So it is a kind of machismo. It's, it's incredibly dumb, but it has some sort of power. But I don't, I don't think it's pathologic. It's a Russian pathology. It's just maybe a bit more visible, but they're doing an even worse job than we are in terms of mobilizing public action to defend themselves against the virus. Well, we're talking about the virus. I, I thought you had an interesting interpretation on, on the conspiracy theories element of, I mean, everything that's happening right now. It ties into the masculinity, the perception of country under siege that we see here and in Russia, and how when people in, say, America are talking about conspiracy theories in Russia, 
that they tend to ask, how do people believe that thing? Or do they really believe that thing? But you don't think that that's the right question to be asked. Right, but not about Russia, but about anyone. Sometimes it is. I mean, I find myself asking that when I when I am like reading about all the MAGA folks, right? But for me, it's less how can they believe that, but then like, what is it that they hate so much that brings them to believe that? But the point that I'm trying to make, um, that I think you're alluding to, is that it's not just a binary question of believing or not believing. Yes, they're the fringe people that we see first and foremost, right? Like the QAnon people who are out there talking about Democrats eating babies. Those are presumably hardcore, right, true believers. But I think what's more interesting is how there's a spectrum of, I think there's a spectrum of belief in a conspiracy theory where you can kind of sort of believe it for a moment. Just as, you know, when we consume narrative, like we watch some conspiracy uh, movie and we believe it for the moment and then we stop believing it, right? So when I think about like people saying things on TV, like broadcast television, reporters and so on and so forth, do they believe, do do they not? Ultimately, their sincerity isn't important, but at the moment they're acting as a person who is the subject of a, of a conspiratorial statement that is going out there. And therefore, at that particular moment, we have like a... But I think one of the, one of the things, one of the mistakes intellectuals make so much about conspiracy theories, and just really about politics and ideology in general, is assuming it, assuming our beliefs are the products of our rational, rational choices and our rational um, deliberations. And a lot of scholars um, who do more empirical stuff and conspiracy theories have been have been showing how, in fact, we have beliefs and then we come up with rationalizations to believe them. It's just a matter of how reality-based our, our initial beliefs really are. So that it's not so much about trying to, to debunk particular belief in something. What's more valuable usually is trying to get into, sort of take on the subject position for a moment. Okay, so how is it that you can be a person who is saying that right now? What brings you to that? And then how can you address those concerns? And how can you address the background that has led this person to, to say these things? Assuming we're not talking about like intense mental illness, then it's a, almost a kind of forensic archaeology of a person's path to, that was a terrible mix of metaphors, but path to um, conspiracy belief or to kind of quasi-conspiracy belief. Like people will say, yeah, I kind of believe it, you know. So for instance, Hillary Clinton, right? So no surprise, I voted for, I voted for, for Bill, I voted for Hillary, but I'm very aware that as someone who's been, you know, consuming media for decades, I've had this sense like, I don't entirely trust Hillary Clinton. And then I ask myself, why don't I entirely trust Hillary Clinton? Well, you know, at some point, decades of all this, this, this stuff in the media, all of the, um, even things when I don't believe it, when I hear it, ends up leaving a kind of general sense of, oh, there's something shady going on. And maybe there is, but that's not the point, right? When do you make the jump from general distrust based on, dare I call them memes, or just cultural understandings of other people and and, Mm -hmm. and politics to it becoming a worldview? Or is there even a jump there? Um, Maybe not a jump as a series of little steps, but in the case of, say, with Hillary, right? I mean, setting aside my general skepticism towards anything that sounds like a conspiracy theory, which sometimes means I'm deceived by something that's actually like really happening, I'm not vulnerable to the set of conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton because I generally am more on her political side of the spectrum than, you know, the other side. So therefore, I don't need, there's no psychological, political, ideological need in myself to identify her as a villain. In fact, arguably, I have the opposite need to try to convince myself that she's that she's good. Um, so what gets tricky there is you have people like Trump, you have people like Bannon, right? You have people like, God, what is his name? Yes, thank you, Stephen Miller who I would say, based on everything I've heard, really are horrible people who are plotting, right, to to change this country that we live in. 
And therefore, when I think about them and when I talk about them, I kind of sound like a conspiracy theorist. The problem is, I think that it's true, which means I'm sounding like any conspiracy theorist who thinks that it's true, right? It's just that I happen to think there's a, a great deal of evidence. But that's what's so vertiginous about having these kind of discussions about and with people who believe in conspiracies, because if you if you step outside, is there really a difference between my identifying Stephen Miller and, and Bannon and other people like that as, as the people who are plotting to kind of, from my point of view, destroy this country and people who believe that Hillary Clinton is doing it? Granted, they're more Baroque because they're adding in, you know, sexual slavery and pizza. But, but still, right? I mean, I sound crazy. Nothing more Baroque than pizza. Yes. <laughs> well, they have all the toppings, right? You know, every, all the pedophile toppings on those pizzas. I don't know. I don't even know which ones those would be, but yeah, no, they, they, they all the weird comp, they have Hawaiian pizza. They've got right. all. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, before we start hating on pineapple on pizza. I love it. No, not, not hating for the audience. Please don't, please don't subscribe. <laughs> So, Dr. Borenstein, while you're working on your project about memes, you also have a book, Pussy Riot, Speaking Punk to Power. You mentioned in the description that Pussy Riot is continuously misunderstood by the Western media, and this book is out to kind of set the record straight. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, sure. So, it's not, it's it's probably the first book coming out in that Russian short series, which means 40,000 words, I guess like 100-some pages. The whole point between, behind books like this, which include the, the meme book, is to try to write something that's hopefully accessible to a non-specialist audience and give them an understanding of a particular phenomenon. So it comes with Pussy Riot, and Pussy Riot was just such an obvious topic for this, and I had been planning on writing a book about it when Pussy Riot was happening, then I heard Masha Gessen was writing a book, and she, you know, can she, she can write a book while I'm you know, half asleep, So there was, and she had all this access to all these people, so I, I gave up. But it occurred to me that there's still a lot to say to an American audience about how easily and wrongly pigeonholed Pussy Riot um, was by both Russian and Western media, but in different ways, right? So for the Western media, what they really loved is punk rock band, which they really kind of weren't, feminists, which they certainly were, and then anti-Putin, which they were, but that wasn't all of it, right? And the thing that's happening in both medias, and really just about everywhere that people were talking about Pussy Riot, was there's this intense need to make them one thing, which is particularly ironic when you're talking about a group that identifies itself both as kind as anarchist and punk, because those are things, but those are things that are kind of anti-things or um, or things that com- that um, contain multitudes. And Pussy Riot is inconsistent. I mean, I think they're they're ideologically consistent, right? Their 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 beliefs seem to 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 be um, really rather stable. But the form they take and the things they do, they, that changes. And to expect them to stick to some particular form or script is a real misunderstanding of, of who they were. But also one of the things that I'm really fascinated by with Pussy Riot is this tension between anonymity, which is what they were really trying for, and celebrity, which is what they ended up with. And that's that's really quite, quite complicated and, and, and fun. Yeah, honestly, thank you. That was fascinating. I watched a, a good chunk of your um, meme lectures oh. and I just, I'm a heritage speaker. I moved here oh, right. from Russia, but like I never grew up in that culture. I'm completely sure. lost when it comes to contemporary Russia. So uh-huh. it's just like, I'm sitting here like, they're memeing about Lenin's body. What's <laughs> happening? <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad. Yeah, those are fun to do. That was kind of a whim, really, and something to do during COVID, but it really helped me. It turned out to be a lot of the legwork for writing the book, so I'm really glad that, that I did it. A, a cry for help, I think you said in your first video. <laughs> totally, totally. Send me memes. And, and actually, what I was most dreading, but also thought was most useful, 
I was waiting for some actual Russians to tell me I'm full of shit. Um, (laughs) It didn't happen, but I feel like it sort of should because there's got to be things I'm missing, right? Or getting wrong. And so I was kind of hoping to be fact-checked, but but it uh, wasn't quite the right audience. It seems like you just have a lot of online projects. Yeah. And is that more now? Were you doing that before COVID? It seems like a good time. So when I started the the All the Russias blog for um, the Jordan Center, I really found that I loved the blog format because it got me writing and got me on a schedule. And then I basically, I made that the model of all the writing I do, which is like little short pieces and deadlines. So that's why I, when I started writing Plots Against Russia, I did it as a blog to keep myself working. And it's been so good for me that basically every, with the exception of, of, of these two short books, right? Um, every long project I do now, I do it as a blog and then I, I edit it. And it's so much more fun that way. And I don't, and for the most part, I don't think very many people are reading it, but it doesn't matter because in my head, I'm pretending there's someone who is waiting for it and reading it. And therefore I have to write it. So pretty much at any time I'm doing some book draft in as an online project, like right now with the Marvel comics thing. So that's, that's been just so much, that's been liberating for me. I've been so much more productive ever since I turned everything into a blog. And also since I got promoted to full professor and none of it means anything. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm envious of your work ethic because if anything, sitting at home and not doing anything has made me produce absolutely nothing at all in oh, the last like few months. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. And I'm totally sympathetic. And it makes me kind of feel bad because then I feel like I'm just like some sort of club that you can use against yourself to like, no. you should be working harder. But, but it took only the last like 10 years or so, less really, that I've been able to do this. For years, I was like not writing two books. <laughs> Right. And then finally something, something sweet, you know, there's always hope. There's time. There's, there's time for time. me. There's, there's more time for you than this for me. So, so, so use it. I, I'm just jealous because you get to look at memes all day. And then <laughs> yes. the thing you find when you, when you publish a book is you move on, but other people don't think you've moved on. So you're still asked for things like that for years after my first book, I was asked like, give a talk on something with modernism or like, I have nothing new to say. Right. So I assume that I'll be pushed into talking about memes for several years from now, which is fine. And that's more fun than trying to come up with something to say about Mayakovsky when I haven't read him in a decade. Hopefully there'll be new memes. I have no doubt there'll be new memes. So what are you each working on? Where, where are you in your, your graduate studies? Colin, you want to go first? Yours is more sure, interesting. Sure. I guess it, we're both second year as master's students. Wow. We're in the same cohort. Global policy studies and Russian, European, and East. Russian, European, 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 European studies. Yeah, all the E's. All the, lot, lots of C, lots of E's, a couple, maybe a C and an S. Yeah. <laughs> maybe an A if you're feeling right. <laughs> I was really interested in this and in, in speaking with you actually because I'm interested in like video games particularly and how I feel like there's a divide between, for lack of a better term, East and West Slavic games. Yeah. Whereas like in Russia, as you've written about, there's this dystopian, that's why I mentioned Chernobyl, uh, soccer and Metro. But in Poland and the Czech Republic, where I'm mostly looking, they are very medieval. And right. They tend to be very like triumphant and almost like return to Europe and they fit very neatly in like Western. Like The Witcher? Like The Witcher, exactly. Yeah. The Witcher and Kingdom Come Deliverance. I there's really like that. There's so little translate, but I really like that um, Polish science fiction read, is it pronounced Dukaj? D-U-K-A-G-J? He's amazing. But So you're both second year master students and you're already doing this podcast? That's that's amazing. Well, the podcast came before us. Is the one still, who they, they, they get you in here pretty quickly. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> And Lera, what are you working on? Oh, I'm I'm like the policy person over here. Oh. Uh, I come from a background of working in diplomacy, nonprofit study abroad exchange stuff. And so 
I, I came into this program thinking I would go into like the CIA, NSA, FBI thing. Uh-huh. And now more than anything, I want to go back to doing nonprofit work and like oh, yeah. diplomatic stuff. So that's that's what I'm doing. But in terms of my research, I, I'm interested in a whole lot of things. I'm not going for a PhD eventually. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to getting back to that cubicle. That's waits oh, me. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I also really enjoy actually studying Russian humor. I did a whole paper on Gai Dai oh, the other semester. Yeah, really enjoyed it. I, I did a comparison of his like golden year Gai Dai movies and his crap uh-huh. from the 80s and just like finding out why it didn't click. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. I really enjoyed doing that. I um, bet. Did you yeah, watch those when you were a kid? I grew up on Golden Age Guy Dai. Like, yeah. after cool. E, I've seen it more times than I can count. And then I've never seen any of his 80s movies. And so I kind of like, I went into it. I actually compared the kidnapping of Kakazu Plini. Yeah. And Dangerous for Your Life in 85. I don't remember that one at all. Not good. I couldn't recommend it. It's okay, pretty then. bad. Uh, I've certainly watched my share of bad stuff, so I'm not going to seek out more if I don't have to. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really great discussion. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. So, uh, as they say in Soviet Russia, podcast record you. Wait, wait, Shrek is a meme? Like, like Shrek. Like, like Mike Myers, Shrek. Peter the Great and Shrek. Yeah, they like compare him. I don't make memes. Like Petersburg, his swamp. Gustav Adolphus, get out of my swamp. All right, we're picking up from Shrek in five. Colin, I think it's only appropriate to end our episode about memes with a Russian joke. Are you, are you ready? I'd love to hear it. On the Estonian border, a border guard is filling out Putin's entry form. Occupation, the officer asks. Not today, Putin replies. Just tourism. And that's our episode. We made it. We made it, guys. We have achieved comedy. SNL, this is my uh, audition tape. I'll be the one, like, really close on the mic being like, hey, guys, you know what's really funny? Depression. Thank you for listening.